0: Tonight, my panel, Daniel Moylan, who's the former advisor to Boris Johnson and now Conservative life peer in the House of Lords. We've also got Nabila Ramdani, who's the journalist and broadcaster, and Frank Ferredi author and academic and you know the drill on jubes and co it's not just about us here it's about you at home as well and your thoughts you can get in touch with me on email gbviews at gbnews.uk and you can tweet me at michelle Jubes or at gbnews don't forget of course if you haven't already you can subscribe to us on youtube watch all the best bits uh, when i say best bits obviously i mean uh jubes and co you can search gbnews it's all on there and you can watch us live you might be doing that and if you are hello to you Uh, and I always forget to mention by the way the radio you can watch us watch us listen to us I mean on the radio so if you're sitting there thinking I want to watch tubes and co but I need to go pick the kids up worry not You can listen to us in your car on DAB+. We are everywhere. So let's get into our first top story, shall we? It's day 23 of the war in Ukraine. And despite the talk of peace deals uh, and demands, I've got to say, bombardment has continued across the country. Today, several cruise missiles struck and destroyed an aircraft repair plant near the airport in Lviv. And to the south of the country, Russia's defence ministry said its forces were tightening a noose around the city of Mariupol. Frank Freddy, I'm going to pick up with you. I mean, this is never-ending. Every single day, you switch on the telly, you pick up a newspaper... And there's just more and more reports of devastation. We were speaking yesterday about, are we potentially uh, moving towards a peace process? You know, what's your thoughts on all of this?
1: Well, I don't think the uh, war is going to end anytime soon. It's evident that the resistance uh, to the Russian invasion is quite formidable, uh, quite uh, exemplary. But nevertheless, the uh, Russian military power is so overwhelming that despite the resistance and despite getting all these wonderful air to uh, ground-to-air missiles which have been shooting down Russian airplanes, I think that uh, it's likely that Russia will escalate. Uh, the bombing near Lviv is a, is a sign of a new uh, sort of battleground being opened up. And I think that what we've got to really worry about is that alongside the military escalation, there are a number of other dangerous developments. I think the principal dangerous development has been the way in which China and Russia have been pushed together so that their their alliance, which Mm. always existed informally, uh, is becoming more and more uh, formal and and, and is becoming more and more dangerous in many ways. And I was a bit worried and and sad when I heard President Biden lecture the Chinese as if they were young children about democracy. Uh, And predictably, the Chinese reacted by sending their aircraft carrier into the Taiwan Straits, giving essentially two fingers to Biden, but also indicating that their uh, formal neutrality towards Russia is in practice going to be uh, called into question. And, And I was talking to somebody this morning who knows a lot about Chinese affairs, and she was telling me that it appears that the Chinese are now supplying Russia with weapons on a fairly large scale, kind of covertly. So as long as that continues, there's a danger that uh, the escalation is going to be our problem for the next, you know, next, at least for the medium term, never mind the short term.
0: Yeah, and I think you're right with what you pick up there, Frank, as well about the whole you know, un- I speak often. I'm like stuck record sometimes on this program about unintended consequences. Everyone's got the same uh, intentions, which is you know this needs to end as quickly as, as, as you know with as minimal impact on civilians as possible. And I understand the drive with the economic sanctions and things like that. But there are vast unintended consequences, and pushing people into China is just one of them. Uh, Nabila, your thoughts?
2: Well. You know, when we see the footage of what's going on on the ground, I think the expression total war comes to mind, and it describes an aggressor trying to win by any means possible. And I think that's what Vladimir Putin is definitely trying to do. And there's no question of limited attacks on limited objectives. Clearly the Russian army has been told to focus on civilian targets, as well as a military targets, and the result is absolute hell. And. I think the Russians clearly don't want anybody to feel safe, and they attempt to make the Ukrainian government capitulate as soon as possible. And we've seen Putin speaking uh, on stage today in Moscow in front of a massive crowd, and he very much has the the look of an old-style dictator in charge of the, one of the largest military forces in the world. And I think, as Frank, Frank was saying, we cannot underestimate the absolute military might of the Russians. Putin is speaking in very much in dramatic and often irrational language, which is full of references to great, uh, the great patriotic war against the Nazis and, indeed, references to the Cold War. And we should not forget that he has a massive stock pile of nuclear uh, weapons, as well as chemical weapons. And that is what makes his speech particularly uh, terrifying. And I think that too many commentators are underplaying uh, Putin's uh, power and, indeed, capability. We are ultimately dealing with a country that is almost twice the size of the USA. And it, it, it has a massive military complex and it's very tightly controlled. And in comparison, you, the Ukraine is just a little bit smaller than Texas. Now, this is, these are just the cold facts. It's not an opinion about how this war might develop.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you're quite right in terms, in terms of population, landmass, and stuff. Russia, Russia is vast. But in terms of like GDP, uh, economic size, I think it's something like the 11th economy in the world. And um, France, Italy... Um, you know, lots of economies, actually, are much bigger than Russia. And I think this is surprising to a lot of people, Daniel, because we do talk about, um, you know, economic sanctions and people. I think maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a hangover from the uh, USSR days. People have this vision that the uh, Russian economy is vast and mighty and, actually, it's not as big as people might think it is.
3: Uh, It's a very small economy and if it didn't have oil and gas and natural resources to export, it would be a, um, a, a, a really... Uh, insignificant um, economic player but it's a big military player Mm. but I'm a little bit more um, uh, optimistic because uh, than Nabila and even Frank because the fact is the Russian Russian troops have been making almost no progress and in military terms they've achieved uh, very little over the last few weeks Uh, what they've managed to do is a lot of destruction so take the bombings now that are going on in in Lviv that's way out in the west of the country. They have, as far as I know, no troop formations there at all. This is purely flying in planes to bomb the place for destructive purposes, not to support a military occupation, not to advance their troops. Their troops are stuck in the mud. And, and, and I think they're going to run out of steam at some stage. Um, and there's a lot of hope given to the Ukrainians. That if they hold out, they can actually reach a stalemate with the Russians, and so I don't think their military power is is actually serving them as strongly as you might think. I would
2: qualify that because that's exactly what uh, Russia did against the Russians during the second uh, against the Germans, sorry, during the Second World War, before throwing. uh, their vast manpower and indeed uh, industrial might at the war, winning comprehensively. And that's exactly what Stalin did. Uh, Soviet casualties far outnumbered any other countries in the <coughs> Second World War. And there's every indication that Putin will just keep throwing soldiers and armament at what he views as a just war.
1: Yeah, but you can't really compare yeah, it, it can't. this war to the yeah. great patriotic oh, no, war. Oh, in terms of, of, that, of
2: tactics, that's exactly what's it, happening.
1: Yeah, but I, I, I think the tactics are fairly interesting because... The reason why they bombed uh, Lviv is to send a message to Poland and to NATO. Yeah. That was a very, sim- uh, very, 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 very clear message. At the same time, I think the truth is halfway in between. They are very powerful, uh, but also what's interesting is that they haven't really begun to use you know, their massive air superiority. I mean, people talk about total warfare, but at the moment they really held back from serious saturation bombing. The kind of things that they've been capable of and they've done in Grozny and other kind of places in the past so mm. I think it's too soon yet because Russia's might has not been unleashed totally but I think at the same time you know, what Daniel says about the resistance and and the way in which that has messed up the initial plan are really quite important but that's why I think it's important to realize we're in a very very early, potentially very early stage of this conflict
0: mm. and, and what about I mean we're talking a lot about military uh, conflict war on the ground, in the air, etc. But I think that one of the things um, that's very tricky at the moment is often knowing what to believe. So all of the information wars at the moment, there's so much stuff that, especially in the world of social media, you know, stuff just gets shared around instantly, and then actually it transpires that it wasn't true after all. So I wonder, uh, Daniel, your thoughts just around the whole kind of information flow. I mean, the, the bulletin reader there was just mentioning about Russia Today, for example, uh, has lost its license here. Do you think, uh, in terms of you know, information, how important do you think it is, I guess is my direct question, to know and to hear the other side of this debate? Because we hear a lot, uh, we see a lot, uh, we listen to Zelensky's address, et cetera. But understanding the other side of all of this, the Russian perspective, do you think that's uh, important, of interest, or should just be ignored?
3: Well, I wouldn't have taken away the license of RT, because I'm not frightened of propaganda. I don't think the British people are easily fooled by propaganda, and I'd have left Russia today uh, broadcasting personally. Um, I don't think that would have done anything to sap morale or increase disinformation. The fact of the matter is the story is very stark. You have a country which appears to be um, a relatively democratic country being invaded by a country next door, um, on very flimsy grounds, on, on the claim that it's not democratic, it's all run by Nazis, and it's got to be denazified, and it simply belongs. It a, and it doesn't exist. It isn't a real country. Um, so you, you, got to, you, there, there is a black and a very strong black and white to this. Mm-hmm. Do you want to understand how the Russians see it? Yeah, of course you want to understand how the Russians see it, because understanding how the Russians see it is necessary to see some way if there is some way out of this. But that doesn't mean to say you accept how the Russians see it. Uh, it actually has any great validity. Well, there's See, a grey area. Which I is... was just
0: about to say, Daniel, you said there it's very black and white, but I actually um, feel that the, it's not always clear black and white. I think that there are nuance, uh, there's context, there's history, there's shades of grey, and I think often that is ignored uh, and dismissed at the moment. Frank?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think w- one area where, for example, you know, we are not told the truth, is in relation to the way that the sanction is working. So, for example, most people don't realize that the other day the American tre- Treasury actually saved Russia from defaulting on its on its on its debts on its bonds because it pragmatically decided that it's far better for the American and the global economy if it does that. <clears throat> we don't often know that some countries in Europe, principally Germany, are playing a, a double game here in terms of being. Uh, I'll talk uh, about sanctions, but at the same time allowing uh, sort of uh, gas and other raw material kind of uh, sort of imports to kind of continue. So there is a kind of uh, cynical pragmatism on our side, which I think needs to be discussed and debated, because, you know, at the moment we we could be very naive about the meaning of the sanction, how that works. And uh, I am worried that at the moment we're also doing something that I, I find reprehensible, In in this country, we're arguing that academics who question the official version of events ought to be disciplined by their universities, which goes against the whole spirit of academic freedom and free speech. And sometimes we do really stupid, silly things, like banning uh, Russian tennis players from competing on the grounds that they refuse to, you know, put their hand on the Bible and say that they hate Putin. I mean, those kind of tactics or worthy of the other side, rather than a worse side. I mean, but
0: you raise well, a really interesting point here, Frank. Um, you know, it's not just tennis players. There's this absolute sentiment. Um, You know, and it's almost, I feel a little bit like compels speech. And I almost feel, I'll be completely honest here, I feel like I'm really treading on eggshells and really being careful of my words so as to not cause offence or upset. Um, And I guess the point that I'm trying to make is there's almost like become this, you know, Ukraine and Ukrainian people good, Russia and Russian people bad. It's kind of expanded into things Goods, services, etc. And I just kind of—it makes me a little bit nervous because every sane person would would think that this kind of what's happening in Ukraine at the moment is wrong. Every sane person would want this to be, you know, finished as Mm. soon as possible, etc. But I just kind of—I'm trying to pick my words. I think.
2: You know, propaganda has always been part and parcel of wars. Uh, That's why you have um, Ministry of Information and... I'm not talking about
0: propaganda, I'm talking about... There's this whole kind of... You're seeing it right across society now. I'll give you an example today. Uh, Boycott Burger King, for example, is trending all over social media. And and what it's all about is what people are saying is that Western brands must not operate in the Russian Mm. market. So Mm. your everyday Russian Yeah, but what's wrong
3: with boycotts? I mean there's there's a big difference between bans and boycotts. Absolutely. Okay? Um I personally might choose to boycott Burger King for just that reason. That's my personal choice. That's my autonomy. Nobody can affect nobody should be able to tell me about that. That's very different from a ban. And it is true that an awful lot of people feel revulsion at things that are connected with Russia or things that endorse the Russian government at the moment and they should be free To undertake boycotts, I wouldn't object to that at all. And there is a difference between that and banning. And I worry about Frank and the uh, academic um, uh, clampdown on academic speech. That's 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 a recurring theme. In our universities, it's not just this. It's, it, it, it says more about our universities than it does about Russia. The way things are at the moment. And,
2: and, and there, I say as a journalist, I worry a, a lot but more in about. In terms about... of a
3: boycott and a revulsion, I would not buy tickets for this. I wouldn't buy. But if people want to say that and they feel that, that's absolutely fine.
0: No, I guess what I'm saying is there is a difference between uh, Putin and Putin's regime and oligarchs, and then your everyday Russian citizen. Well, there is a Who between... hasn't done uh, anything?
3: There is, but well, that isn't entirely true because although. Although Russia is a um, is not a, a free democracy, it does have sorts of elections. There's no reason to think Putin hasn't actually got majority support in the country, and it appears that there is, a, from a, the minimal opinion polls that have been done, that there's a very large amount of public support for the war, whether they've been done so on the basis of flawed information or well, yeah, whatever, You saw that at that event today.
0: You but, saw you know, that. There
3: is a lot of support, so the, the idea that the Russian people are somehow totally innocent I'm not saying they need to be punished, but I don't think we should be supplying them. But we, should we should be by careful about
2: spreading collective guilt as what? well. It's not a yeah. matter
1: of collective guilt. What about, what about, for example, like in America, they've been throwing rocks at Russian restaurants, and I can give you loads of examples. Yeah, violent, violent activity shouldn't but just take the very place. Fact that but deciding not to go to a Russian restaurant, why not? That's perfectly all right. But when you have intimidation, yeah, well, the implication, of that. implication of intimidation in the air, and I think that there is a lot of that. I think we as a civilized side of the war are obliged to uh, respect the fundamental notions and and norms of democracy and of of freedom of exchange and freedom of expression. Mm. And I am worried that this happens in wars. I, I saw the first time that we become caricatures of ourselves. And instead of maintaining the moral high ground by saying that we're open to discuss ideas, we're going to argue and debate, there's a sense in which there's a closing down of discussion and I think, as, as Michelle says, you do have to begin to watch your words. So, you know, for example, like I think that there, there are two sides to the argument in terms of its historical origin of this war. You know, I think both sides made a lot of bad mistakes. There's no two sides in the discussion now. You have to support Ukraine against Russia. But to say that and to argue that there were, you know, that the West, you know, is, is in some shape or form, have contributed to a chain of events which led to this war, if you say that, then people think you're Dracula sometimes. Then you've got to see people coming with a cross.
0: But that's not healthy. Exactly. I, I actually think, not only is it not healthy, I actually think it's quite dangerous.
1: Absolutely, yes, absolutely.
2: Nabila, what was you about to But say? I think we should differentiate between legitimate and indeed civilised way of acting, as Frank was highlighting, in terms of economic sanctions, uh, boycotts and all sorts of... Um, uh, leverages that we have at our disposal to try and cripple uh, a, a country that is, uh, has illegally invaded a sovereign nation. Let's not uh, lose sight of that. You know, there lies the crime. But uh, in terms of what I worry about is in terms of information or indeed the amount of disinformation that we're getting and not least of all to go back to the point I was trying to make earlier the, uh, I do get worried when I see commentators um, trying to make out that Russia is on the verge of collapse, for example. And this is not my opinion. These are just called facts about the uh, huge uh, industrial military complex uh, in, in Russia. And I think it's reckless. It's a reckless view and one that can potentially put the Ukrainians in a very dangerous position.
0: Yeah, um, and also there's been a lot of conversation around uh, all the Brits that have opened up their homes to uh, Ukrainian refugees, which I think is absolutely wonderful. Uh, I think it's really heartwarming, actually, to see that people have seen people in need um, and kind of stepped up, opened their home, or offered their home at this stage. Let's let's be clear where we are, but offered their home, etc. And I kind of I do and I am a bit like a stuck record on this topic as well I think that's great and I think absolutely people should be uh, doing that wonderful But I do also think there are so many other conflicts uh, Happening in this world at the moment. There are so many um, You know abuses of human rights being conducted by different foreign governments at this moment in time and I do You know, after all this is done, uh, hopefully it's sooner the better, I really hope actually that the sentiment that people have about wanting to help others, that we extrapolate that and help people in this country as well, because we have so many homeless people, we have so many children in care in this country, we have so many, um, you know, women and children in this country that need to get out of abusive relationships, that aren't able to get into domestic violence, refugees because of lack of funding and all the rest of it. And I hope that this kind of wanting to help sentiment continues, uh, and and people actually want to help people here as well that really are in need all the time. And my last point, um, I find it peculiar, and I don't know why I'm looking at you, Daniel, but maybe just because you're sitting there, I find it peculiar uh, when we've just been looking then at David Cameron. You know, here I am doing my kind of aid stuff, and I worry that we're kind of verging off into leveraging this crisis into opportunities for people to gain virtue points for themselves. Do you know what I'm saying? Do you get me? Does anyone on this panel agree with me?
3: yeah. Am I talking nonsense? I get you. I don't entirely agree with you. I think the situation in Ukraine is uh, is specific to Ukraine. and and the, The word refugees is used in a very broad sense, but there are different types of refugees. And what the people in, uh, coming from Ukraine are better described as temporarily displaced persons, displaced by the horrors of war. They're not trying to leave the Ukraine in order to make a better life elsewhere. What they want is to get back to their home and very often their families, their husbands, their fathers um, in Ukraine as soon as they possibly can. That's a very different situation from refugees who are long-term refugees or people who are seeking a different life elsewhere. You're right, I think, about the points about people in you know domestic abuse and people here in this country, and what we can do for them. But I think we need to be more nuanced about what a refugee actually is, what it counts as. The UN um, Commissioner for, High, for uh, High Commission for Refugees makes that distinction between temporary based well, people well, and the Polish long-term people say, refugees.
1: But when Ukrainians come in there, there's a difference. Be, be, the old refugees were single men who were economically motivated to move into Europe. These are women and children principally. There's hardly any men coming through And they are genuine refugees. So I think they are specific. But there's a second point for Britain, which is that for the first time we have a refugee crisis that's linked to a threat to our own security. So in Ukraine, unlike in other places, our our own security and that of Europe is entirely linked to it. And we should take that very seriously.
0: I need to move on, but Nabila, I want a final word to you, Mm -hmm. because I can see you shaking your head.
2: Yes, I think you know what, what you've said is is quite right. I mean, beyond all the logistical problems that it, this um, the, the the new government scheme uh, for refu- for welcoming refugees will, will present, I think it's a huge. Dare I say? Let me first say that since the government officially opened its website uh, to welcome um, refugees and allow uh, British families to welcome refugees in their home, more than 138,000 Britons registered their interest in hosting a, a Ukrainian family. So I think these figures are a huge testament to the generosity of, of the British people and the way they, their willingness to help people. And um, but it's not as simple as that. You have lots of uh, very uh, real logistical problems. The government himself itself is being very, extremely cautious, and things are more complex than than they look. You know, these are people who will have suffered physically and mentally. Mm. They wouldn't know what the future holds for them. And they won't just be able to slip quietly into British life. I think uh, a lot of them won't be able to just, won't be willing to just sit there. They would quite rightly want to to get jobs, even if it's on a temporary basis, before thinking of going back home. And there will be all sorts of checks that will need to be carried out, insurances arranged and resources allocated and the like. And beyond all these logistical problems, remember that Britain has just gone through a very long and complex process which was meant to prioritize British citizens over new arrivals. And these new measures uh, put in place by by the government uh, uh, in the wake of Brexit were uh, meant to make it harder for new arrivals and not uh, easier. But you also highlighted the uh, problem just briefly, if you will, briefly about you know there are other people, uh, new arrivals from other war-torn nations, not least of all Afghanistan, who will argue that their needs are just as important as, as those of the Ukrainians, and dare I say. It, it, it has to be said that the truth is that dark-skinned Muslim uh, migrants are treated with far more suspicion and, there I say, antagonism than uh, people from uh, European nations.
0: OK. Uh, I do have to clarify, I wasn't talking about arrivals or definitions of refugees. What I was The point I was trying to make is it's wonderful that people have stepped up to help uh, people in need from different countries. That's excellent. Uh, the point I was trying to highlight is that there are thousands of people in this country, actually, that could do with some help and support from their fellow citizens. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Dubry. Just a quick reminder as to who our panel is keeping me company tonight. We've got Daniel Moylan, who's the former advisor to Boris Johnson and now a conservative life peer in the House of Lords. Nabila Ramdani, who's a journalist and broadcaster. And Frank Ferretti, who's the author and academic. Now, let's talk COVID, shall we? All remaining COVID travel measures, including the passenger locator form and tests for unvaccinated arrivals, have now ended in the UK. Um, I've got to press pause there, just purely so that I can go, yes! Anyway, back to my professional self. The Department of Transport has said a range of contingency measures will be kept in reserve in case action is needed to tackle new variants. Previously, only fully vaccinated people were able to enter the UK without the need for tests. The decision was made despite rising COVID-19 cases in the UK, which have risen by nearly 44% in the last week. That's according to ONS data. Daniel Moylan... No, it's
3: great news. I'm I'm with you. Um, It's fantastic news. It's great that we're leading the world in this and we've got to learn to live with COVID. We can't carry on the way we have been in the past, fearful and restricted, and we've got to go out and embrace the world. But what would you just
0: say to the point I just made then, when it's, um, you know, hang on a second, because cases are rising in some places? Are you not nervous?
3: No, I'm not nervous. I think we've got vaccines, we've got to live with it, we've got to be sensible and cautious in how we conduct ourselves. That's absolutely Mm. fine and we need to go on. Um, we, we cannot live cowering uh, under our, te- you know, uh, under our chairs uh, for months and months on end. Uh, we have to be brave and go forward and, 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 em- and embrace the world as we find it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've got to say, Frank, I agree with everything Daniel's just said then. But I also believe um, that there's still people that have lost their mind over COVID. The whole response and reaction to COVID, I hope anyway, I might be wrong, but I hope that in years to come, we'll look back and go, goodness me, what on earth were we thinking putting in place some of the restrictions, the measures, et cetera?
1: Well, I think what we have now is a, a group of people <clears throat> who've adopted this lock style, lifestyle, lockdown lifestyle whereby they basically live the, the lockdown forever. I went skiing last week and I thought it was very, very interesting that half the people on the plane absolutely resented wearing a mask. Mm-hmm. The other half loved it. And when we <laughs> go down to Grenoble... To the How do you airport, know,
0: by the way? How do you know that?
1: Well, you could just tell they, they were looking at the other half as if they were moral <laughs> inferiors. And when I, uh, my wife asked one of them, you know, sort of, why are you wearing the mask now that we're you know, outside of the airport because we're waiting for the buses? One of them says, well, we could never be too careful, and the hint was that somehow we're irresponsible for uh, using our bare faces to engage with the world. And I think that's become... There's a lot of statistics that show that almost uh, a third of the population really thinks that we're going too fast in terms of getting rid of COVID restrictions. And there's a a syndrome that psychologists invented called the cave syndrome.
0: Called the what? Cave Cave syndrome. Cave syndrome. Which
1: basically is about uh, the fear of re-entering into the world and leaving your cave behind, Mm. which indicates that for a lot of people, uh, this kind of lifestyle is going to be around for a fair bit of time. And I think that's very sad. It's very regrettable that not everybody is celebrating and enthusing and about the fact that, you know, we're back to a, a semblance of normality.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Nabila, I mean, you know, there's a place in China that's just gone back into lockdown. Um, there's talks about goings on in places like Hong Kong, and there's still a desire. Um, in some places to get to zero COVID, to literally try and eliminate COVID from the menu, if you, if you, uh, you know, excuse my crassness. But it's just not possible, in my mind, anyway. Um, and we do just have to get on. What do you think about what Frank was just saying then, again, about the whole kind of cave syndrome and people that have been... Um, they've adjusted now to this new normal.
2: Yes, absolutely. And that's why one of the government's announcements um, uh, towards the end of the year was to say that we have to learn to live with it. Um, Britain has been one of, or the first country, I think, to uh, move from the status of pandemic to endemic, mm-hmm. meaning that he will, the, the, the COVID-19 will be, or the virus will be part and parcel of our lives uh, from now on. <clears throat> but, you know, with vaccination rollouts being, <clears throat> showing that they were quite effective in containing or indeed making the, um, the, the the virus less uh, life threatening, if I may say so. We see less cases of uh, people dying, for example. Um, so that should be welcome, uh, you know, welcome news. But I think, as you quite rightly said, one of the aspects of all this has been to learn uh, that we can lose our freedoms fairly quickly. And we shouldn't take anything uh, for granted in that respect. And, and beyond the cost uh, of dealing with all this, I think the sheer amount of stress and hassle and, and indeed all the paperwork involved has been an absolute nightmare uh, for most of us. And the last couple of years have been particularly miserable for all travellers uh, in, in particular, whether going on business trips or, or indeed on holidays. So I think... This is fantastic news as far as I'm concerned, and especially as the Easter holidays are, are nearing. <laughs> I've got to
0: say it's not been miserable uh, for me when it comes to travelling because I've decided not to travel abroad purely because I would be on the side of the plane um, that you would describe it, and I would not be on the side of the plane that was loving it. I would become infuriated with all the red tape and all the rest of it, so I just decided I'm not doing it. I will uh, do a staycation. Um, <clears> I'd just <throat> stay in the UK. I'd go um just places here if it continued i would have just unfortunately for my son i would have been taking him camping and those kind of things i just would have refused to travel if this had carried on but there are still people that are frightened and actually if i try and put myself in the mindset because we're all kind of sitting on this panel saying that it's wonderful but daniel i'll come back to you if you put yourself in the mindset of someone who's got a very compromised Immune system um, that is actually at risk of uh, harm from COVID and is vulnerable, and you know it it probably would be frightening. I suspect to yeah, certainly. If you
3: if you have a compromised immune system Mm -hmm. and you're seriously ill, you're at risk not just from COVID but from a whole range of other infections, and you have to conduct your life very carefully and very differently in order to stay um, safe. And this is not just a COVID thing, but. I don't think it's people like that that Frank was talking about who was sitting on the aeroplane to Grenoble to go skiing. <laughs> okay, the people on the aeroplane going skiing. I mean I I'm I never skied in my life. It's far too strenuous. But I mean, presumably you need to be reasonably fit to go skiing. Your limbs have to work. Your muscles have to be in reasonably good shape. These people are presumably fundamentally healthy, or they wouldn't be going off to the slopes. Well, not
0: really, because um, a lot of people go skiing just for the après skis. They've got well, no intention of going Well, you're but skiing, telling me
1: things it? I don't even know about. Oh, no, I, mean, <laughs> ski, I mean, the après not... is really serious stuff. So it's wonderful. Uh, that's uh, the
0: best part. It's for not for a half, half-hearted.
1: half-hearted. But I, I think there's a bigger problem, which is. In schools, in universities, in the civil service, there's a suspe- substantial number of people that refuse to go back to work even now. Mm-hmm. So many teachers, for example, and headmasters have decided to ignore the rules about masks because they, they, can, they argue that you can never be safe enough. In my university and other universities, we're still not back to normal face to face teaching. In the civil service, some section of the civil service, Literally, about 40% of the employees still have not returned to the office. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when you have that kind of attitude throughout the country, you know, we have to realize that COVID had a huge psychological, emotional impact, which basically validates the laziness of some people, but also the, the fear of, genuine fear of others.
0: And by the way, when you talk about masks, um, there might be viewers in Scotland that would be sitting there going, this is all well and good, what you're talking about. But in Scotland, uh, some of these rules are persisting. Uh, it's not been the end of masks and things like that. Um, and I just kind of, you know, I always have to try and pick my words carefully in this, because I have incredibly strong opinions about all of this stuff, I have to tell you. Um, but when it comes to Scotland, Abila, I think, I mean, I'll just say it as I, as I think it. But I just think that people have got this COVID thing and they've become uh, power crazed. They see this as this kind of opportunity um, to almost, you know, this is my moment. This is my opportunity to differentiate myself from England, to control my population. And I think it's all gone to their heads a little bit. I'm talking about Nicola Sturgeon, obviously.
2: (laughs) Well, you might get Scots who will have the exact same reverse view about England, saying this is a power trip by Boris Johnson, uh, granting uh, individual freedoms while being a bit reckless. Uh, But I think it's about finding the right balance and trying to um, take into account the uh, health issues extremely seriously while also making sure that the country reopens uh, economically and and functions as as, as normal uh, as much as possible and i think people are quite happy in general to go back to work to go back to some sort of normalcy in the uh, knowing that they are going to be safe generally so it's, it's 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 a difficult one but um I think it's about striking the right balance. Well, you say that some
0: people are happy to go back to work, etc. I've got to say, I still think there's an awful lot of companies that use COVID as an excuse to provide diabolical service. I cannot believe how many um, companies, I won't name them because I don't want to get sued, quite frankly, but there are so many companies now that you still cannot even barely get through to somebody um, because (laughs) of COVID, because they're experiencing all of these long uh, wait times, etc. No, you're not. You're just cutting corners because of COVID and you're using it as an excuse to provide poor service. That's what you're doing. Uh, it doesn't wash with me, I'm afraid. <music> Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubbury. A reminder as to my panel, Daniel Moylan, who's the far- former advisor to Boris Johnson and now Conservative Life Peer in the House of Lords. Nabila Ramdani, who's a journalist and broadcaster, and Frank Ferretti, who's the author and academic. Now, let's talk DVLA, shall we, briefly. It's emerged that hundreds of DVLA staff were sent home on full pay during the pandemic without having to work at all. Over half of the government's uh, agency staff were at home doing not a lot slash nothing during the first lockdown in April and May 2020, including those that were not ill with COVID. And figures for August 2020 reveal that nearly a 1,000 DVLA workers remained on special paid leave. This decision to let staff be paid for doing nothing for weeks has left millions of motorists stuck in a backlog of licence applications and renewals. I've got to say, I don't think I made myself clear enough. I'm not sure I repeated the sentence enough during that intro. So just to uh, highlight, in case I wasn't clear, these people were doing nothing. Yes. Have I landed my point? (laughs) Nothing. Uh, This special paid leave, this basically applied to people that said that they were vulnerable or that they needed to care for people or whatever. They were just off on full pay. While murderous, and cast your mind back, by the way, because we've moved on from this in the media, but let's not forget, we had a massive HGV shortage. We was apparently going to have empty shelves and never be eating anything ever again uh, because we didn't have drivers, etc. Nabila, your thoughts?
2: Well, this, these are the results of a detailed investigations by The Times, and uh, the results do not surprise me at all. I mean, if, if you send thousands of civil servants uh, on full pay, um, you send them home on full pay during a global pandemic, it's quite obvious that many of them are not going to do much work. And it has to be said that most of the uh, administrative work carried out by agencies such, such as uh, DVLA is by definition very dull and there I say very repetitive. <laughs> so unsupervised workers who are sitting at home are naturally going to be drawn to more, let's say, attractive pursuits. And uh, in the case of the Times investigations, this included uh, watching a lot of television. So it wasn't just a question of staff not working, but there just wasn't enough work being generated because there was nobody uh, in the office to, uh, to, to handle incoming mail, for example. So it just goes to show that, you know, packed workplaces are essential to the smooth uh, running of bureaucracy and, and, and the sooner everybody Um, gets back at work properly the better I think.
0: And and Daniel you know Nabila mentions packed workforces uh, and this was one of the problems that the unions had actually because they were very insistent on very special um, measures being taken in the offices of the DVLA that meant that actually uh, people were not able to be in the office in the numbers that they should have been I would suggest your thoughts.
3: Well first of all i normally like to stick up for the government Uh, I really would like to know when the government found out about this I mean did they read it in the Times as well? Well, um, how, long have they, how long have they known about this and what have they been doing about it? Because, you know, we're well on from this now. And, and if there's still a million, a backlog of a million, who's been dealing with it? Second question is, this was not in line with government guidance. I don't know what the unions dictated, but the government guidance was you could you should work from home if you could... And if it was the case that they couldn't work from home, lots of people had computer terminals at home where they could actually work and plug into central systems and carry on working. If that wasn't possible for the DVLA because of the way they work, and I don't understand that, they should have been going into the office and the union should have been face down over this because people were able, lots of people went into offices, offices were well organised so that people could work in them, socially distanced, as they said, and that should have been the driving thing behind the management of the DVLA. It does look to me like the management just gave up. Did the government know at the time? When did they discover? Who's responsible for all this and who's carrying the can?
0: Yeah, well, I'll tell you who who always carries the can, uh, as per usual, it's us, your everyday person, so there'll be many of you um, that's been desperately waiting for uh, your licence and haven't got it. There's a backlog, by the way, of nearly a million. Uh, And I know that many of you, you often have to send off your passports and things like that. Um, And you will have had... Well, Frank, you tell me what you think, actually. I keep telling everyone what I think, and you wonderful people are here too.
1: I think what, what I learned from all this experience is that government guidance is not worth the paper it's written on. And in so many cases, despite government guidance, you know, people just carry on in the same old kind of way. And the problem is not the workers at DVLA. The problem is management. Because I think what you've got is a very slothful management that finds management a bit of a drag. You know, they would rather sort of uh, stay in their digital bedrooms you know, sort of an, a mess around, that actually give leadership. And we're finding this happening in so many uh, government-related departments in the public sector that it's becoming truly frightening. I mean, it even extends to the Foreign Office, where something like a third of the, of the members of the Foreign Office who work there are still staying in, 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 uh, in you know, at home. Uh, so for, for me, the real problem is that we need a, a much more uh, genuine leadership in these areas, where people actually lead from the front. I think, to me, the biggest tragedy, or the biggest problem that this brings about isn't just simply the fact you can't get your license, it's the fact that the government is not in control of its own state. I think what we're learning more and more, there's numerous examples of the last year, is that the government imagines that they're uh, sort of implementing policy, but somewhere along the line, that policy implementation or that direction, those directives, get diffused and, and become completely irrelevant. And the uh, whole kind of machinery just carries on in a very uh, sort of passive kind of a way, which I think represents you know, not just n- not value for money, I think it represents the, you know, in some ways uh, giving two fingers to the taxpayer because it's our money that's being wasted. And it's the taxpayer is not being serviced with some very essential services. Mm.
0: Well, uh, lots of you have been getting in uh, touch, actually. letting me know that you've struggled with this as well. Um, Phil says that he had a nightmare of the DVLA over a year for over a year trying to get his license renewed on medical grounds. Carol says uh, it's diabolical. She references how difficult it is as well to get through on the telephone. Uh, lots of you have been getting in touch, I have to say, on the whole kind of uh Russian Ukrainian uh situation. It always really does divide opinions, Um, and Dave makes a really interesting point. He says, our government's uh, first responsibility is to the British people. He asks uh, a question, shouldn't we be suspending foreign aid right now? And that, Dave, if I say so, is quite a good question and a debate for another day. Should we still uh, be paying foreign aid? Should we be paying it in the way that we used to? And by the way, where are we getting all this money from at the moment? I thought that we you know, barely had any money not that long ago. Now, it seems that anytime there's a problem, millions, hundreds of millions come out of God only knows where. Anyway, it's Friday, which means it's the weekend, and that means that I want to leave you with some good news to go into the weekend, because we barely have any of that these days. Uh, So let me share with you this story that caught my eye. You might have seen some of it. There's two young brothers. Um, they were lost in the Amazon jungle for 26 days and nearly four weeks. You might have seen that this story in the news. Uh, and if you have, like I said, nearly four weeks they've been missing. Guess what? They've been found. They were found by a local tree cutter uh, alive and they have been rescued. I'm showing you on the screen uh, what they used to, uh, sorry, what they looked like before they went missing. Um, And this is the condition they were found in. If I've got these pictures, they are quite concerning. Look at that. Mm. These two uh, beautiful little boys, uh, age seven and nine, uh, they were found with severe malnutrition, dehydration and skin abrasions uh, and they will remain in hospital until they gain weight. Um, But I have to say, what a lovely end to that story. Uh, Whenever you see, you know, children going missing, I'm playing the rescue right now. I mean, look at this. You can Mm. see such a big crowd uh, has gathered um, as a mom to a little boy myself, I've got to say those pictures uh, when they were found, it, it makes me get goosebumps. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank God, whoever your God is that you pray to, I mean, look at it, there they are. Beautiful, beautiful little boys uh, and thank the Lord Uh, that they are found safe and well. So happy news to end the show. Uh, That's all we've got time for tonight. Thank you very much to my panel, Frank, Nabila and Daniel. Thank you very much to you uh, at home as well. Never lose the faith, that's the uh, motto. That's the the message I got from that story. Four weeks missing and found safe and well. You have yourselves a good weekend and I'll see you on Monday.